Hello, and welcome to the Reg Studies Podcast. I'm Susan Dudley, Director of the GW Regulatory Studies Center. Today, we have an interesting podcast with an outside guest, um, and I'll just give a little background before I introduce him. We in the center have commissioned a series of essays in honor of our late colleague and dear friend, Jerry Ellig, who passed away suddenly in 2021. Jerry was brilliant at applying economic concepts and empirical analysis to improve public policy, and he enjoyed not only studying, but finding solutions to real policy problems in government and academia. He published prolifically in peer-reviewed journals, economic journals, public administration, political science, but also in law reviews and more popular publications. One of his co-authors in the law reviews is Reeve Bull, who authored one of the essays in our series, which is now posted on our website. So Reeve is now the Deputy Director of Virginia's Office of Regulatory Management. Prior to this, he was Research Director of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He's also an elected member of the American Law Institute and sits on the Council of the ABA Administration administrative law and regulatory practice section, where he co-chairs the section's e-rulemaking committee. Now, the Regulatory Study Center has enjoyed collaborating with Reeve over the years, and he co-authored two papers on judicial review and benefit cost analysis with our, our friend Jerry. Welcome, Reeve. We're happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Susan. Now, this essay, you ground it um, with just by a little bit of background on what, what Jerry taught you or what Jerry would have done. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about your experience working with him? Absolutely. I, I would love to. So um, so Jerry was was really a, one of a kind. Um, and uh, in addition to being brilliant, probably one of the foremost economists working uh, in this space. Um, what really always struck me about Jerry was just how down to earth he was, um, you know? And I think that uh, in addition to making him a very good person, um, I think that also really made his work uh, very effective. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say in the paper, though Jerry could, could you know, talk uh, fundamentals and high economic theory with, with, with the best of them. Um, he really always, at least when I worked with him, and I think this was true of his work more generally, really tended to focus on sort of foundational questions, things like, is regulation even really needed? Or uh, is this particular regulation the best approach to, to solving a problem? Or, or did the agency give a coherent explanation of, of what it is um, it's trying to do? Um, and, you know, that's something that's really always stuck with me. Um, it's something that I really try to sort of keep at the forefront um, of my mind in my current job, which we can maybe talk about a little bit uh, in the podcast as well, where we're basically trying to build a state level version of OIRA um, and, you know, trying to design a system that, that really focuses on those foundational questions, you know, what is needed, what are the possible alternatives and, and how to explain it in a clear a clear way. Um, and that's what inspired this paper as well. Um, really looking at that question of sort of, is regulation needed? And uh, particularly a question that I think is almost ne never asked, if regulation is needed, who should regulate? 
Should it be the federal government or should it perhaps be a state government or a local government or perhaps is the private sector even uh, capable of self-regulating? Um, so that's what I tried to do with this paper. And, you know, really from start to finish, it's it's fundamentally inspired by, by Jerry's approach, what Jerry taught me uh, in terms of, of how to really look at regulatory problems. I think you're right. That's an essential first step in regulation is to understand the problem. Um, and longstanding guidance does tell agencies first to identify the problem a regulation is trying to address and to consider the most effective ways to solve it. So in this paper, you argue that agencies don't adequately consider what level of government is appropriate. Why? Maybe I should just start. Why should they pay more attention to that particular question? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think um, it, it's a question that, that that you're right, that sort of it technically um, is, is part of the analysis that agencies uh, are, are supposed to be doing circular uh, or the original version of circular I4, as well as I think the new version that maybe doesn't emphasize this as much in uh, executive order 12866 as well. Um, you know, that's the first step is, is there a problem? And, and I think they, they mention the possibility of, of state regulation, uh, but they don't, traditionally, that's really not been something that, that agencies have taken that seriously. Um, and I really think they should. So, you know, part of this comes from just sort of my own, you know, personal background. I, I grew up in a, a small rural state, Oklahoma, you know, which is about as far as you get from sort of the halls of power and in Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know, so really most of my experience, all of my experience, perhaps, you know, in the first 20 years or so of my life uh, was really at the state level. You know, what what does the state do in terms of uh, regulating uh, issues, societal problems? Um, and I don't mean to suggest that the same problems that exist at the federal level don't exist at the state level. You, you certainly have, you know, capture and an efficiency and and all of those things at the state level. Um, but I think what's advantageous perhaps about the state level as opposed to the federal level um, is that the states are, you know, first of all, much closer to the people. Um, they, state officials usually have a more nuanced view, a more detailed view of how their regulations are going to affect people's lives. Um, and then I think relatedly, um, they're much more likely to hear about it. Um, if there's a problem or if there's a company or an NGO or some other entity that's affected by a regulation, it's, it's, it's more likely that they're going to be able to provide the sort of detailed information that can help the state um, adjust its policy. To put it in a little more technical term, then you see this, you know, I mentioned this in my paper, but you see it throughout the literature in this space. It basically comes down to tailoring and experimentation. Um, states can, can tailor their policy more carefully, oftentimes than the federal government can because they're closer to the ground, uh, and they experiment. They can try different approaches, and if, if a particular approach uh, doesn't work well, then they can adjust it. They can try something else, and they can learn from each other. Um, so I think for all of these reasons, um, it's really, really important that, you know, anytime um, you're going to regulate, anytime we decide that, that the government needs to play a role, uh, we should ask this foundational question of who should play that role. 
Um, is it the federal government or is it the states or perhaps even a local government or the private sector or the people themselves? Um, so I think that that foundational problem should really be sort of at the forefront of any any regulatory analysis. Yeah. Um, now, you spent many years in the federal government um, in, in the U.S., and now you're working at the state level. So tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So and that's this inspired the paper um, as well. Um, and I'll sort of, you know, pick up on these themes of, you know, tailoring and experimentation because I'm now seeing it, you know, firsthand uh, here in the state of Virginia. Um, and, you know, Governor Yunkin uh, is, is very, very mindful of this. You know, his uh, anytime he speaks, um, he really emphasizes that his goal as governor is to make Virginia the best place to live, work and raise a family. Um, and really everything that he does, uh, all of the policies that the Virginia government adopts or the administration adopts are really focused on, on those problems. And a big part of that um, is what our pure states are doing. You know, Virginia is in a pretty competitive uh, part of the United States. You have North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida uh, that are all very, very close. Um, and then, you know, Texas and Arizona as well um, are sort of the peer states, if you will, uh, of Virginia. And really everything is done um, with the focus on, you know, what are those peer states doing and, and how uh, how is what Virginia is doing compare uh, to those states? Um, and part of that is learning, you know, seeing what they may be doing well um, and, and perhaps, you know, picking some of that up. Uh, and part of that is a little bit of healthy competition. You know, businesses are, you know, um, really focused on the bottom line whenever they're deciding where they want to locate. Um, and it's important that uh, the states, you know, get the policy right in order to attract new businesses and new 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 residents. Um, so I think that that um, that that competition, particularly, is what's very, very valuable in terms of, of motivating states to try to get their, their policy package right. It's the same phenomenon you see in the private sector where companies compete with each other. Um, and I think exactly the same principles uh, apply, especially at the state level and, and the local level. Yeah, you hear sometimes concern about a race to the bottom, but what you're saying, it really is a race to the optimum to attract exactly. people to your state. Um, all right, now let's kind of take a different perspective. Your background is in law. So talk to us a little bit about the Constitution's vision for the role of the federal government vis-a-vis -vis the states. So what I think is, is interesting is that um, the, the founders, the constitutional founders, um, were really very focused uh, on this problem, what the proper level is uh, for, for the government uh, to act. Of course, you know, a big uh, focus was horizontal separation of powers uh, between the, the, you know, Congress and the president and the Supreme Court. But equally important to the founders was the vertical separation of powers, the separation between the, the federal government and the states. Of course, the founders were focused on strengthening the federal government. Um, their view was that the Articles of Confederation that, that, that predated the Constitution had an insufficiently powerful federal government, that there are certain things, you know, like immigration policy or coining money 
uh, that you need to have a central government be responsible for. Um, but their view was always that most of the power should reside in the states or, or with the people. You know, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment say that uh, explicitly. What I think is also interesting is that having the very large federal regulatory state that we do is really a pretty recent phenomenon. It's something that really started to emerge in the progressive era uh, in the early 20th century, and it really started to, to take off um, in the New Deal. Um, but I think what's, what's, what's interesting is that in most, that's maybe been in the last 100 years. Um, or thereabouts. And the, the prior to that point, the states really did actually wield most of the power. The federal government was relatively small um, and only focused on, on a small handful of nationwide, uh, nationwide issues. Um, and what I think we're seeing, interestingly, is that, um, you know, there's really some wisdom, you know, in, in, in that approach. Um, you know, anyone who's followed national politics in the last 20 or 30 years um, would see that there's really been perpetual gridlock uh, in, in the federal government. And it's, it's really increasingly hard to uh, to pass any new laws. Uh, and um, I think that's likely to continue to be the case for, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, and so depending on whether you're on the left or the right or, or somewhere in the middle, um, if, if you want a more dynamic process, then in many ways, the only option, you know, is, is increasingly becoming the state and the local level, uh, where you have a much greater ability to, to try different approaches. Um, and I think you're seeing more divergence, you know, among the states as a result of that. Um, and I don't think that that's a bad thing, actually. You know, I think for the reasons we discussed, this sort of tailoring and experimentation um, makes it more likely that people will find a place to live that, you know, has the sorts of policies that um, that they like. Uh, and it also allows for learning for the states to compete with each other and to learn from each other um, and to, to optimize their policies over time. Um, so I think in many ways, we're sort of going back to, to what the framers originally envisioned. Um, and I think there are some real benefits to that. Yeah, and maybe, you know, part another benefit that um, you allude to it is they can just be more agile, given the gridlock that we see at the federal level. I mean, going into your paper, you use the phrase subsidiarity, which I first heard in the context of the European Union. Uh, so I, I first heard about it in the European Union context as well, uh, actually. So when I worked uh, for the administrative conference, uh, I uh, one of the things that I did was work on uh, the pro uh, international regulatory cooperation and did some work with the EU. Um, and uh, so I first heard subsidiarity in that context. But what's interesting is it actually has a very... Um, lengthy history. It's actually something that comes from Catholic social teaching originally. Um, and the idea is fairly basic. And the it's it's essentially that um, if, if a problem can be addressed at a lower level, uh, then there's no need for it to be addressed at a higher level. Um, and given continental Europe's Catholic history, uh, that was a, a notion that was in the mind of the European Union framers when they were first creating the EU back in the 40s. And it was something that was put in the foundational, uh, foundational treaties. Um, 
What's interesting is you've also had that concept be, uh, you know, central to American law as well. Of course, you know, when we were discussing that the, the framers, you know, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment, uh, Ninth and Tenth Amendments created a preference for, for state level solutions. Um, and, you know, the term federalism has been typically used in the United States to describe this idea. Uh, but subsidiarity actually goes beyond federalism. Federalism is mostly about the relationship between the, the federal government and the state governments, whereas subsidiarity has has a larger range. Uh, part of it is the relationship between and the EU, the European Union itself, and then the member states. Uh, but it also includes regions or local governments all the way down to, 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 to the people. Um, so what I tried to do in this paper is look at applying a similar concept in the United States. Part of it is federalism, and probably the major focus is on the relationship between the federal government and the states. Uh, but there's also a relationship between the state uh, governments and their local governments, um, and then between the local governments and school boards and you know things that are below the, the, the local government level. Um, and I think it's important to think of it um, across that entire spectrum um, and decide where where the power should reside. Uh, and the presumption should be that it, it should reside in the lowest possible level. So do you think that states and local governments are up to the task? Great question. Uh, I, I do. I do think they are. Um, and uh, Actually, my, my experience over the last year uh, of working in Virginia has has really reinforced that for me. Um, I, I'm very impressed, actually, by what I see. I think that the uh, the people working in Virginia uh, and the state government are every bit as smart and, and dedicated uh, as their federal counterparts. Um, but I've also seen that they are definitely closer to the problem. They're, um, they're much more likely to have a, a nuanced understanding of how this is going to work in Virginia or even a part of Virginia. Um, and then relatedly, uh, the stakeholders are, are, are closer to the policymakers as well. Um, one thing that I've really been struck by is we've reviewed regulations in Virginia is that they don't get as though they don't get as many comments uh, as you would typically get at the federal level. Federal rulemakings can, in some cases, get millions of comments. That's very rare at the Virginia level. The most you would typically get is maybe a few dozen, um, and, and most rulemakings probably no more than a handful. Uh, but as a consequence of that, the agencies really do take each comment very, very seriously. Um, they, they typically list out each comment that they received, and then they, they try to answer it, uh, provide either a rationale for not making a change or um, or actually do change the regulation. I've seen that many times. Uh, so it allows for this dynamic interaction between the policymakers on the one hand and the, uh, the, the stakeholders, the people who are actually affected by the regulations. Um, right. on the other end. Let me just interrupt to tell you a story. My husband used to work, he was deputy secretary for natural resources at the state level. And he said, and he also was at the federal EPA. And he said the difference was if he issued a regulation relating to fisheries at the, the federal level, he'd get a lot of comments submitted on the record. If he did at the state level, someone smelling a fish would show up in his office the next day. I think that's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. I was actually at yeah the Virginia Marine uh, Resources Commission recently, and um, yeah, you know, it's the, the fishermen themselves that are actually uh, providing the info, which is refreshing. You know, it's actually it's it's, it's really cool to see. Um, and I think that's how government should work. It should be a partnership, you know, between between elected officials and appointed officials, and and then the people. Um, and I, I think you see a lot more of that um, at the state level. And, you know, I would say the consequence of that, that I, I think this is certainly true in the U.S., and I think it's true in the European Union as well, from, from what I've seen, that um, there are really a lot of opportunities to, to, to push power down. There, there's sort of this, I think it's just human nature to try to centralize power uh, as much as possible. And um, I think that to the extent that agencies can, can get away with that and, and really start seeing, or federal agencies can start seeing, you know, their state counterparts and their local counterparts as, as partners, um, I think that it makes for for for, for much better policy making. Um, and as I explored in the paper, there there are the mechanisms in place to achieve that. We mentioned Executive Order One Two Eight Six Six and Circular A Four. Uh, earlier, there are also actually a couple of, of other executive orders that uh, task federal agencies with, with working with state governments and then also uh, Native American tribal governments. Um, but they just really haven't been uh, invoked that frequently in the past. Um, and my hope is that, you know, as um, as these trends continue to play out and, and as you see more and more action take place at the state level and the local level, there will be more of a willingness on the part of, of federal agency officials to, uh, to, to work more closely with their, their state and local counterparts. Yeah, so so bringing things back to, to Jerry, I know he did some work on state level regulation when he was at the Federal Trade Commission. Did you ever talk about these ideas with him? So technically, we did not. Um, we never actually uh, talked about subsidiarity. Um, but I, I like to think that it's 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 uh, it's an approach Jerry would have liked. You know, I think I think that for, for for several reasons. I mean, one was because he always had such a strong focus on the foundational questions, and particularly, you know, the first step of a regulatory impact analysis, asking if there was a problem. Um, so I would see Jerry as, as seeing that seeing that as a as a important uh, question that, that agencies should be asking. Um, I should also mention Jerry was a practicing Catholic, so um, he was almost certainly uh, familiar, you know, with the idea of subsidiarity. Um, and like me, Jerry also didn't grow up in the Beltway. He uh, was a, a kid from Cincinnati, and he actually, uh, for a lot of his professional career, actually lived on the farm um, in, in South Carolina. So, um, he too, um, you know, spent most of his time outside of the, the Beltway. Um, and I think he, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think his perspective would, would likely also be there are plenty of people, you know, uh, in the states and at the local level who are perfectly capable of addressing the, these important social problems. Um, now, I should say, you know, I think the paper would be a whole lot better if I had the benefit of, uh, of Jerry's expertise. Um, you know, the comments that he provided were always very, very uh, targeted, sometimes a little intimidating, but um, I always felt like, you know, they, they, they always greatly improved um, the writing. So I lament the fact that, that, that Jerry wasn't, you know, able to, to, to comment on this. But um, I like to think that it's an idea that um, 
They do want to have found interesting. Um, and um, I have to say, I'm, I'm honored for the opportunity, Susan, to participate um, in this memorial issue. I think that this is the perfect way to honor Jerry's legacy, and I, I really feel privileged to, to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you, Eve. I think a lot of us miss Jerry's insights and feedback, as well as his sense of humor and um, his outlandish sometimes sense of humor. Um, so thank you very much for, for, for the essay and for joining us today. You can find a full version of Reeve's essay on the center's website at gogwu.edu slash regstudies. Reeve, thanks for keeping us informed. I hope you can join us again soon. Absolutely. Thank you again, Susan.